I got a, um, I was watching uh, Twitter, and a guy in the audience, his name is Tony, and he tweets about 20, 30 minutes ago, Kathy Sierra is up, and Auker, Kathy is awesome. And Auker, I've heard she's very good, to, uh, the one time I saw her, she was fine. And so I thought, well, that's excellent. Um, so the whole notion of like having sort of this idea of like, tonality that comes through on user interface or Twitter or social media is actually much more, um, I think, clear as, um, as, uh, as hopefully this uh, session will go on. But I was really, really um, illuminated by Kathy's session. I'm going to talk a little bit about this notion of happiness. Uh, when I started talking to Neil about this a couple of years ago, I, t uh, I was giving a talk in um, the Business and Software Conference two years ago, and it was on building strong global brands and understanding consumer relationships. And I said, listen, Neil, I'm doing a lot of research in the area of happiness. I think you'll like it. Um, so understand that sometimes the data on happiness is starting to accumulate to be very interesting. And Neil said, I don't know about the topic of happiness. It feels very soft. And I said, well, our data is um, suggesting that happiness is quite miserable. And so he said, now you're talking. Excellent. I will have you on. You talk about data, and you also talk about how happiness is miserable. So the talk for um, today is about why chasing happiness is uh, not only useful, uh, useless, but also leads to miserableness. And in fact, um, the talk was originally called Beyond Crack Cocaine uh, to illuminate this point of being sort of miserable when chasing happiness. So what I'm going to be talking about today, if I can get through the next slide, is why that is so. Uh, the data that I'll talk about is not only the data that I have, but also data that's um, collected at other universities as well. So I'll be sharing that. I'll also be sharing some of the data that you provided me uh, in the questionnaire that was sent out last week. So I wrapped in 300 data points into this presentation, and we'll talk a little bit about how the insights in this talk apply to you as well. Um, as you know, the, the, the research on happiness is intriguing for some and all-consuming for others. You've seen books and bookstores and periodicals and magazines talking about how to achieve happiness, especially in this culture. The talk, topic tends to be so interesting and all-consuming. Everyone thinks they know what happiness is. Uh, they believe that they can attain happiness, and in fact, it's uh, only recently that that's believed to be, at least in the American culture, something that we have the right in the um, to have, that everyone has the right to be happy, but that is a very new idea, and in fact, um, uh, back in the 18th century, uh, this notion of having the right to be happy was not at all uh, held to be so. It was um, something that was gifted onto certain people, but not others. So it's really only in the last century that this belief has permeated our culture. Uh, and it poses this question of how can I get happier? If this is this right, and I feel annoyed right now, how can I get happier? Um, but the research that we show suggests that, indeed, this question in and of itself leads oftentimes to happiness. And so I'll talk a little bit about why. The first problem in this research is that everyone thinks they know what happiness is. Uh, the data that you gave me suggested that when I asked, what do you think the meaning of happiness is, you said something like this. So again, first thing that's really interesting is with the exception of a few things, a lot of you said inner peace, which I found to be interesting. A lot of you said contentment um, and absence from anxiety. 
But um, there was significant heterogeneity in the data that you gave me. Um, some said money, some said feeling empowered, enjoying work, being admired, waking up in a good mood, success. Um, so when you ask someone, so I'm going to ask, what's your name? Carrie. Carrie? Carrie, you know, are you happy? Excellent. That was good. I will pay you money later. Um, and then what's your name? Bob. Bob. And are you happy right now? Oh, good. It would have, uh, it's not as good of the answer as Carrie's, but it's still excellent. Um, so when you are saying you're reasonably happy and you're saying I'm actually pretty happy right now, um, what you're actually referring to seems to be similar, but in fact is probably quite different. Do you remember, did you fill out the survey? You abandoned it because it did not make you happy, right? Okay, there was a lot of data there. Do you remember what you wrote down? No. Okay, well, another interesting insight that it might actually have shifted in the course of a week. This is my daughter. She's four years old. Her name is Taya Sloan. And I asked her um, a couple weeks ago, what is happiness? And she sits there and she goes, mmm, yogurt. which I thought was quite astute. I mean, maybe I'm a biased parent, but I thought that that was quite interesting, that the one thing that she was experiencing right there was so good as to feel so connected to that yogurt. And in fact, much of the research we do suggests that that is one of the most ideal points of happiness, of what you're experiencing right now, you feel so connected to, that you're enjoying the benefits of it so much, that that in of itself Um, predicts happiness in the long run much more than other things. One of the data sets that we use to understand the patterns of happiness is a data set called We Feel Fine. This is um, co-authored research with Sepp Kambar, who was at Google for quite some time, along with Cassie McGillner. And what we do is we go along the internet and grab all mentions of I feel and I am feeling. So Sepp Kambar and Jonathan Harris write a program and they all mention, grab mentions of I feel and I am feeling. So we have over 12 million data points of blogs documenting the human condition over the course of the last three or four years. And through, um, through analysis, we can start to understand patterns of happiness, how you might feel happiness carry versus Um, someone else over the course of time because the blog data, as you know, has demographic data attached to it. So we can start to understand what people are feeling, when they're feeling it, who they are when they're feeling it. Um, So drawing on this database of more than these 12 million human feelings collected over three years, this database presents a comprehensive contemporary portrait of the world's emotional landscape. And one of the most interesting findings in the happiness research is that happiness is not indeed completely individualistic, and nor is it unitary, is it the one thing that everyone believes is the same um, for everyone, but the meaning of happiness seems to shift every four to five years. So the data looks something like this. For the teenager in the 11 to 14s, happiness is very simple. First of all, they don't have much of a vocabulary, right? How are you feeling today? And your teenager says, fine. You know, what you do today? Nothing. How do you feel about? Not a lot. Um, So the actual emotional vocabulary is quite limited. Then you grow up to be um, in the 15 and 18s, and the number of words that are associated with angst is significant, so feeling distressed, unloved, unwanted, um, scared, anxious, um, increases dramatically. So the meaning of happiness during those years is just the feeling of feeling known, feeling loved. 
Then you move into the 20s. The 20s, there the, um, the meanings of happiness are very much associated with being vindicated, um, powerful, the idea of being successful, um, having money. So you know the research that suggests that money you believe leads to happiness, but in fact it doesn't. That's not true. Between 20 and 25, having more money actually leads to greater happiness or is highly correlated with it. The problem is you start to build up your life, you have a spouse, you start to get a kid, you have a home, and you've created an ecosystem that is based on happiness as thought of as correlative with money. And when you turn 30 or 40, when the meaning of happiness shifts much more toward balance or understanding your bodies, because in your 30s, that's the first time your body starts to go downhill and you start to notice exactly how bad the body situation is. Um, and so then it moves much more toward gratefulness and feeling connected uh, and feeling peaceful. So around 50-year-olds, um, the, the meaning of happiness is much more toward peace. So as you can see, the meaning of happiness is shifting systematically. In the 20s, happiness is much more associated with conquering the world. These are the words that pop up in significant population, feeling capable, justified, adventurous. Then it moves in the 30s toward balance, vindication, entitled, successful, but also rested, peaceful, blessed. Um, and then in the 40s, it, the meaning of happiness migrates to contentment, wonderful, positive, glad, secure, grateful. But there's also a weight of responsibility either due to children or financial situation that they feel. Uh, and then it migrates into peacefulness. And so one of the um, issues, by the way, we don't have a lot of blog data on people older than 50. They don't really blog too much. Um, so what's happening is you're constructing your life around the time when happiness is defined by money and or conquering the world. And yet um, you keep chasing that sort of same thing, but your meaning of happiness has shifted uh, in the course of those five years. And the question is, how can you reconstruct your life to migrate with that new meaning of happiness? A second problem. People don't really know what makes them happy, but they think they do. So, for example, when I asked you how might you improve your data, improve your happiness, these are the types of uh, insights that you revealed. Make more money, become an indie Mac developer and be able to live anywhere, get promoted, find a less stressful job, fix my employer so I'm happy. That was one of my favorites. Uh, fix my employer. <laughs> uh, get to a place in my job where I no longer feel like I'm constantly behind schedule. Have the worry glance surgically removed. Increase free time, rest time. Spend more time in Sedona. Spend more time with good friends. Spend more time incorporating teaching back into my life. And one of those fucking startup companies that I would actually like to make with some fucking money that I could concentrate on making important things like making babies. My all-time favorite one. Um, <laughs> So this notion that you have this finely tuned sense of what would make you happier if just I could fix my boss, then all of these things would ensue, and then windfalls of energy and happiness would follow. Um, but the data suggests that that's actually not true, even though you're experiencing that very much at the moment. Uh, so for example, this is data uh, collected back in the 1970s, uh, and it showed that the threshold uh, that you return to, the happiness threshold, is incredibly um, quick. That most people think, as the person did in the last data point, that when I get promoted, I will be happier. The data suggests that you work really hard, you get that promotion, you got that promotion, your happiness spikes, and that lasts three days. 
So three days after you're promoted to your glorious job that you've been thirsty, yearning after for the last two or three years, and you are back at default levels of happiness where you were before you actually got the promotion. Even more interesting, the data suggests that individuals in a controlled condition versus individuals that actually won a lottery, a substantial lottery, over $500,000 or a million dollars, Um, When you contrast those happiness levels at a later point in time, just three months later, the individuals, after got a windfall of happiness, after winning a lottery, went back to the default levels of happiness, in fact, even lower in some cases than the individuals from a match sample who did not win any money. And the interesting thing there is, is that the individuals that won the million dollars shifted their reality such that no longer was the nice Pete's coffee that made them so happy in a small moment of time, and indeed it no longer made them happy after the million dollars. Uh, I don't mean to quote rap artists, but more money, more problems. Um, and in fact, the data even su- suggests that individuals followed um, before and after um, a significant accident that rendered them paraplegic or quadriplegic, even in those situations of trauma and, um, and, uh, and tragedy. Within six short months of having a traumatic accident, individuals go back to default levels of happiness, and in some cases, indeed, higher levels of happiness than before the accident because greater meaning has come into their life. And you know people that have suffered from cancer or other diseases where, indeed, these types of tragedies are significant, but the types of meaning-making that happens after them are even more significant. Oops. A third problem. People don't actually remember what makes them happy. So we have data on Disneyland suggesting that it's actually quite a miserable place. If you look at online uh, experience ratings of Disneyland, asking people while they're at Disneyland, are you having fun now, are you having fun now, and you follow them, both kids as well as adults, what you'll find is that it's actually a mixed experience at best. That there is high peaks of happiness, but more often than not, you're pissed off that there's a long line, that the parking is crowded, that the tickets were expensive, that your child never wanted to leave, you're there at midnight, everyone's exhausted. Um, Yeah, it's quite miserable. Now, you wake up in the morning after staying at Disneyland Hotel, and you think, can't wait to go back. So now what's happening here? We're having a poor experience during Disneyland, and you wake up the next morning, and all of a sudden there's memory decay such that the positives overwhelm the negative. Um, So what we show, that's due to a confluence of effects. One of the effects is that, um, you know, people take pictures, right? And do you take pictures of your child crying at Disneyland? No, No, you do not. You take pictures of your child smiling, and then you relive those pictures of your child smiling with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Daffy Duck, and it seems very, very fun. And so photographs actually color the way you remember something. Disneyland is the happiest place on Earth, so the way you brand or you frame the company or the experience also, uh, research suggests, has significant influence on your memory. A fourth problem, there's operational challenges. Uh, The time, um, you may have seen this data before, sociologists follow office workers around um, during the course of the day, and they find that individuals are interrupted every three minutes. The time it takes to get into flow, flow is defined as um, feeling in something where time passes without you knowing it, that you're so enjoying the experience that you've lost a sense of time and place, and you're... 
and, and deep enjoyment uh, ensues. There's uh, brain activity that shifts as well when you're in processes of flow. It takes 24 minutes to get into flow, and yet you're interrupted every three minutes. So it's amazing when we get any of the work done. And in this study, by the way, uh, they went around and they said, well, maybe a lot of these things are sort of um, self-interruptions. You know, after I get the United ticket booked, then I'll get back to work. Or I'll get one cup of coffee, and then I'll start my job. I'll just, I'll just do this one email, and then I'll, I'll get work done. So they removed uh, self-interruptions, and they found that it's still you were interrupted every 12 minutes. Um, so the insight from this data suggests that, indeed, you want to watch your self-interruptions, but even then, you have to find a way to understand this new reality, but yet figure out how to get into flow. So one of the in, uh, implications of this research is to stop chasing happiness, and instead, we find that these goals, when you chase them, tend to be far more effective in improving productivity and overall meaning in life. One is brief moments of fun, and the second is the overriding goal of being effective and having meaning in one's life. So I'm going to talk a little about how you do that, because it's easier said than done. I'm going to talk about two pieces of the equation, the brand or the company that you work for, and how you think about it that way, as well as data on the individual. So briefly, um, the research suggests that what really drives happiness in a company, both internally for employees as well as for customers, um, is autonomy, competence, relatedness, self-esteem, and being part of something bigger. And you just heard a lovely lecture about enabling competence, making individuals feel like they are a hero or that they're effective at something. So I won't hone in as much on that, but I did want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to feel like you're part of something bigger. Um, as you unpackage the meaning of it, what it really means is that the employee feels effective, feels like they have meaning at work, that they have a shared goal, and that it's a lasting goal or a lasting impact. And if you have these four things in some small pocket of your working life, and you can enlarge them, the research suggests that people tend to be much happier at work. Um, one of the things we talk a lot about is truly strong brands aren't externally focused. They don't really talk about the stories they're telling the customers or even what the value proposition is all the time. Incredibly strong brands do just as good of a job understanding themselves internally and building a strong brand from an employee standpoint. So on the left-hand side of this uh, framework, you'll see things like, why was your firm founded? What were the founding principles? What are your core beliefs? What is your heritage? What were the CEOs like? Um, what's your philosophy? What's your corporate social responsibility? What does your company stand for? What are the stories that are told internally that are not marketing messages, but are stories that are perpetuated and internalized inside? And only those types of companies where like at Zappos or other companies where those types of messages are so consensus-based, consistent, and inspiring, those are the conditions under which they actually have to spend very little money on marketing messages or branding because the internal message is so well understood and that echoes outward. I wanted to tell a story about eBay Green. Some of you might know this. I have several friends that work at eBay, um, and I love this story. eBay Green started um, a few years back, and it was started by a team of individuals within eBay who were much more interested in understanding how eBay could be operating in a more sustainable way. So they came up with a bunch of practices, recycling and other types of things that were, uh, led to sustainability. And... Um, 
and it gathered momentum. It was significant within eBay. There was people passionate about it. It was a bottom-up process, and John Donahoe uh, uh, applauded it and packaged it and allowed them to operate. And at one point, they decided that they were going to indeed have a brand, eBay Green Team, and they were going to allow it to be customer-facing, so that right-hand side of the funnel. Uh, now there's over, within a very short period of time of a year or two, there's over 100,000 users on eBay who are now on part of the eBay Green Team. Um, that they do things either through organic or sustainable materials, and they have business transactions that are highly sustainable uh, in ways that are other than just the product through packaging and mailing, et cetera. Now, what can be more sort of beautiful in my mind than that in the sense that the person that decided this within eBay not only harnessed the energy of employees inside, but they were able to tap a community of over 100,000 users. And every time you tell a story about the eBay green team, eBay wins. Because the primary competitor to eBay is Amazon. And what is more sustainable than buying used, vintage, recycled material, not making more new, new, new product. So every time they talk about eBay Green or every time there's a story that's afforded by the eBay Green team, eBay wins relative to Amazon because it's a point of differentiation relative to Amazon. So these types of things where social good is happening in a way that is consistent with profit making is, I think, one of the most interesting ways to think about what you're doing at your company. We have a lot of research that shows that most people think that doing social good comes at expense of profit making. And in fact, if you look at executives, why did you give to this organization? Why did you do this philanthropic effort? They will tell you that the top five reasons are senior management wants it, there's a push on global giving right now, we're going to be a global company, so we're going to give globally, my gift is matched by my employer, um, this company has proven effectiveness, and we have strong profits. So in the minds of most individuals within companies, and certainly CEOs, the idea of why you're doing social good is at expense of profits. It's only when we have strong profits that indeed we can create social good, and we know that employees within a company are often happier in, in terms of a more meaningful life when they're doing something that has personal meaning. So what we're finding is with younger and younger companies, these smaller, really interesting social media types of companies in particular, um, when they're aligning their profit motives with the social good, you find employees inside to be much happier. I'll give you a quick example, world of good. You go on this online marketplace, you buy goods that you might have bought at Amazon, et cetera, but they're goods made from individuals in developing countries. So it's like a Kiva-like model where you spend time um, uh, purchasing or consuming or interacting with individuals in developing countries, but now you're consuming something that's actually affording an entrepreneur in a developing country a way to get out of their situation, concurrent with what you're already buying. So the question I would pose to you is what are you doing within your organization that might align social good either for you personally or for your corporation in a way that's synergistic with profit making? And more generally, could you enable autonomy, competence, relatedness, self-esteem, and this feeling of being part of something bigger more generally? Now I'm going to turn a little bit to person. Um, we have eight 
weird principles that suggest higher levels of sort of happiness and when it's defined in terms of meaning. I'm going to talk a little bit about four. One's time-shifting, working on projects you love, not like uh, creating a reward system and improving your sense of humor. First, we ask uh, individuals, how many hours of deep, hard thinking do you get done each day? This is basically thinking that you know is painful, but you also know it's good for you, it's good for your career. It's just painful. It you know, takes a fair amount of energy, but you have to crunch through it. Um, some people call it the ugly frog, right? And most individuals, uh, and most uh, we have data over a thousand executives saying that they um, have about two hours of deep, hard thinking done each day. Um, but they go to, they wake up in the morning and they believe each day that they will get about three and a half hours of deep, hard thinking done each day. And then it goes on again and again, like Groundhog Day, where you wake up in the morning, you think you're going to get four hours done, you get two hours done, you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, you think you're going to get four hours done, you get two hours done, you wake up. Uh, And it goes on and on. And your data was actually very similar. So that perpetuates a negative cycle of affect. Now, it's not as bad as PhDs. PhDs, if you ask them, um, they believe every day that they will get about six hours of deep, hard thinking done. So at least it's not as sort of depressing of a situation as academics. So the research suggests that one very useful question is understanding when you're most productive. So everyone, raise your hand if you're morning people. You, you get great work. Five minutes in the morning is the equivalent to 30 minutes at 4 p.m., right? Okay, give me, raise your hand if you're afternoon people. All right, and raise your hands if you're evening people. All right, so you all know who you are, and those, those windows of time, that three-hour time frame or whatever, is, is called your temporal sweet spot, right? Five minutes there, you could be working on the exact same thing. Um, you could be even ahead of the game, but it will take you a half an hour to get to the, where you need to be if you had just been working on it at 3 a.m. or at 6 a.m., Now, the interesting thing is, even though everyone knows where their temporal sweet spot is, they're, A, in a position where it's very difficult to own it because people put meetings on you or uh, interrupt you, and therefore owning your temporal sweet spot is a significant challenge. So, point A. Point B. Most companies value innovation, value creativity. Most individuals find that they have a more meaningful life when they have space and time to breathe and think creatively, either when running or showering or um, drinking a cup of coffee. And, And yet those times when you think creatively are not the same times as when you're thinking well and productively and quickly. Um, So the question is, can you start to quadrant your life in a time-shifting type of way so as to reflect these notions of when you're highly productive and when you're more creative? So, for example, for you, most of you are most productive around noon-ish. There was a lot of, there was significant heterogeneity in the data, but that's about right. And most of you are most creative around 3 o'clock. I don't know if it was because of coffee breaks or runs. And so the question becomes, is there a way to time protect? At least during your temporal sweet spot, you turn off the emails, their phones, there's no texting. Um, and more importantly, the research we show is that individuals that can at least quadrant off one half hour during their temporal sweet spot, either because they put their email on an auto response or they shut their door or they work in another place, Um, Those individuals not only are significantly more productive both on a daily basis and a weekly basis, they're happier about themselves and their company. The second thing that's really interesting in this research is that this type of thinking of aligning when you're good at a certain thing with 
what are important roles in your life suggest you can apply this to different um, aspects of your life, which is called time shifting. So for most individuals, they think of themselves as having one's um, self in some sort of way. Am I happy or am I not? But the research shows that we all have at least sort of six selves. You want to be excellent at um, being a friend. You want to be an excellent parent. You want to be an excellent partner. You want to excel at work. You want to have some component of community or spirituality in your life. The number of you who said inner peace was remarkable in terms of what happiness meant to you. Uh, And you want to have some component of health in your life. Now, for some of you, these might be different. Some of you might have culture or traveling as one of the key aspects, domains, or roles in your life that truly drive you, who you are. Um, But most people have five plus or minus two. So this is the data that we collected from you. And what's a better predictor of happiness is not so much whether you feel happy all the time, but rather there's at least a sufficient threshold of happiness in each of these domains. So for example, for you, um, on a seven-point scale, you felt like you were doing a fine job of being a friend a parent, a partner, you are actually really good at health, and also, um, relatively speaking, about um, point two points standard deviation away from the norm in work, so you felt better at work than normal, um, but community and spirituality was relatively low. Now, this data <laughs> doesn't suggest that you should be high on all things, but there should be a minimal sense of where, um, how, how you're doing on each of them. And so the more important thing is not to strive for continuous productivity at work or not to beat yourself up all the time about being a parent, but rather understand that there's six, at least six parts of self and that they need to be satiated to some degree. So as you search for happiness, is it the promotion or is it time with your um, time in uh, Arizona? Um, I think this model will shed some light on how to start thinking about it. The second step, once you identify the six uh, domains of life that are important to you, is to start thinking about where your temporal sweet spots are. So a third of you said, I'm a morning person. A third of you said, I'm an afternoon person. A third of you said, I'm a night person. Um, So whatever time that is your temporal sweet spot, you align that with the role at work. So I'll give you an example. I'm great at working weekdays at 6 a.m., just great. Now, it's very difficult. We have three kids, um, so I often will wake up to grab my half hour during that temporal sweet spot before anyone gets up, um, and I'm really crabby in the morning. So therefore, um, yeah, not an overly impressive parent, for example, in the early morning. Now, I'm a great parent at weekdays at 3 p.m. I'm picking them up. If I have time, I'll sit, I'll listen, I'll really think, I'll be there with them. Um, so understand the temporal sweet spots tends to be useful. I'm a really crappy friend except for cocktail hour. Uh, cocktail hour at 5 o'clock, then I'm present. I listen. I understand. Horrible wife. Most all of the time except for Thursdays at 7 p.m. So if you miss that window, Thursdays at 7 p.m., it is all over. Saturday, Friday is very busy. Saturday, we got stuff to do with the other Sunday. You know, you have to go to church and spend time with the family. So Thursdays, that's it. It's all over. Um, So the question is, what are those temporal sweet spots for you? And is there a way to time protect them at least one half hour during those times of day or um, weeks? The third step in this process is to list favorite traditions, things that you do where you're an amazing father or an amazing spouse or you're amazing at your work. Um, So this notion of what are the activities or traditions or hobbies that you do where it takes no effort whatsoever and you are a spectacular friend. So going back um, to me, um, 
coffee and cocktails, that's what CNC is. Uh, if you, if I'm really bad at food, lunch, dinner, I want to go sleep afterwards, but coffee or cocktails, I'm actually, it takes no effort and I'm a great friend. Um, Hope Lab. Hope Lab is a nonprofit that I work with. It's a, um, it's, um, it's a nonprofit based in Silicon Valley. Their first product is Remission. It's a DVD shoot 'em up video game targeted to kids with cancer. And so what we show in this game is that when Roxy, the avatar, so a child who has cancer, um, goes and starts to play this game, the child doesn't even want to eat broccoli, not to mention take chemo. Um, uh, they take the, the avatar of Roxy. Roxy goes through the body and shoots the ugly cancer cells. She finds ugly cancer cells in the stomach, the colon, the pancreas, and she shoots them. And she has to kill 100% of these ugly cancer cells because if she doesn't, she will see them self-multiply before her very eyes. And as she sees them self-multiply, she shoots them, and when she gets weaker, she goes in for her chemo top. She gets her chemo, and she has more ammunition to be able to more effectively kill her cancer. And we show them within one hour of playing remission for these kids versus a control game. We use Indiana Jones as our control. That significantly higher levels of subjective well-being increase and greater adherence to treatment also increases. And all of the data suggests that actual, this is actual chemo intake. And the more chemo intake for these kids that don't bypass treatment, the overall survival rates that increase after one hour of playing remission versus a control game. And what's so interesting about Hope Lab is that they believe that it was a cognitive process that underlied the effects, that you understand how your body works, so you understand what ugly cancer cells are, and that cognitive process drives the attitudes toward taking chemo and behavioral changes to taking chemo, but we found that did not mediate the effect, that did not drive this effect. What in fact drove the effect is that you go into cancer feeling, I am a good person, cancer is a bad thing, and chemo belongs to cancer. I don't want to go take my chemo. I go away from my friends, I break out, I get heavy, um, I miss school. And what's happening with Hope Lab and playing remission is that the affective associations with chemo significantly shift such that chemo now starts to become a positive thing, something that you own that allows you to kill cancer. And that increased feeling that I can kill cancer allows people to have increased feelings of efficacy, which Kathy suggests drives behavioral patterns to make them feel like they have the ability to cure cancer. Um, and that's what's fueling the effect. The affective change of effectively rebranding the meaning of chemo. And what happens is when you go back to these kids one month later, you find that they also find cancer to be less scary, less daunting, less negative. So isn't that interesting? One hour of playing a shoot 'em up video game changes your perceptions of chemo such that you have overall survival rates that increase. It's all about emotion and understanding that you have that ability to control. And what we find in Hope Lab is that the research we do is fascinating. I bring Hope Lab into my classes, so when I teach classes, um, Hope Lab is a big part of it. When Red Cross hits me up for one hour of my time versus Hope Lab hits me up one more hour of time, I'm much more likely to say yes to Hope Lab because Hope Lab, which is a game we let our seven-year-old little boys play, it's our only shoot 'em up video game that the seven-year-olds are allowed to play, Hope Lab is the one nonprofit that touches three aspects of my life. So that's what's called sort of a triple or a home run. This notion that you can find one activity for one hour and it satiates or fulfills at least three or four parts of your life. 
So this idea that you don't have enough time for your work or your family or your home or whatever um, is often satiated or addressed by this notion of can you cultivate triples or home runs or are there things in your life that you don't want to do necessarily but you have to do through work? Can you make them a double? Can you make them a triple? We show that the individuals that adopt this type of way of thinking about things not only tend to be... um, sort of happier, but also have um, greater meaning in their life, which is more important than that uh, temporary feelings of happiness. Note, this isn't multitasking. This isn't doing two things at once. This is doing one thing, but it affects multiple aspects of life. Second, work on projects you love. So the research we show um, that when you're working on projects you love, there's a a release of endorphins, a biochemical release where the mesolimbic region of the brain is activated. So this is an individual, um, this is a male thinking about his favorite brand of beer. Now this isn't a male drinking his favorite brand of beer, and I realize I'm between you and your favorite brand of beer right now, so I will definitely wrap this up. But this is an individual just thinking about his favorite brand of beer. And by the way, the data look very similar when females think about their favorite brand of coffee. The mesolimbic region of the brain is um, associated with pleasure and pain. Um, And so this is uh, an actual biophysical uh, release of endorphins that hits the brain, the mesolimbic region uh, centered on pleasure. And we show that when that active um, part of the brain is alive, that people become more effective, and they also lead to sustained levels uh, or decreased levels of cortisol over the, uh, the long haul. That cancer reduces, and that autoimmune disease is also reduced. So there's a physical, physical response by the uh, frequency with which the mesolimbic region of the brain is activated. Now, when I asked you, give me any projects that you're working on that you love, 20% of you said you couldn't think of one at all in life. Um, And that data is actually very similar to the data that I collect, um, largely. Um, But what was interesting is that when I gave you that open-ended response, there was two types of responses for those of you 80% that actually did respond something. So I was amazed. There's a lot of people very excited about BOS, um, which is a very nice commentary on this conference. I don't find that in most conferences. Um, Building a new practice for my business, new software startup, website renewal project, user interface, iSurvey project, organizing a local user group. So there was actually a large number of energizing projects um, matched only by, um, yeah, I wouldn't think that's very fun either, but some of you do. Um, But there was a large number of individuals who also spontaneously mentioned coaches, daughter soccer team, holiday jigsaw puzzle, redoing my basement, I didn't understand the cleaning one, but maybe they can explain. Uh, Landscaping, planning a vacation, learning difficult uh, piece of music, my divorce. (laughs) Um, So that was quite energizing for this person. Um, So this idea that that, that spontaneously 50% of you listed something home-based versus work-based is, I think, quite remarkable. And what we find is that organizations which have employees that spontaneously mention two-thirds of their most energizing projects at work have higher retention rates. They actually work for less money, and turnover indeed um, reduces, and recruiting is far easier. So the question is, how do you get employees within your organization to grab onto a project that they feel energized by and might hit a social goal along with a profit-making goal? What was also interesting, because by the way, taking away a negative one's life has almost twice as much impact as putting a positive in. 
you had a lot of depleting projects, I have to tell you. Uh, dealing with bugs at work, recruiting marketing manager, Google Analytics, or optimization, again, underscoring Kathy's talk. Uh, performance review, pharmacy module, collecting money from one client. Hire that client. I know it's easier said than done. Uh, SharePoint implementation, assessing detailed reports with much data and no knowledge. Uh, nearly everything at work. Well, that's a problem. Um, and uh, trying to get ex-wife to agree to vaccinate our kids. There wasn't a lot of home um, things that were listed spontaneously as being depleted, which again is defined by you do it and you feel like you have less energy having done it. And the energy projects are those defined as after you work on this, you actually feel more energetic. And the important thing from this data is not just um, reducing the time spent on depleting projects and increasing the time spent on energizing projects, but understanding that we all have depleting projects. How do you strategically juggle these two things temporarily and over the course of the week and the month? So I'm going to get into that uh, for a little bit um, in a second. I'll, I wanted to say that one very robust finding in the neuro-based research is that anticipating pleasure, not experiencing pleasure, has a very similar um, chemical effect on the brain. So I mentioned to you this is a male thinking about his favorite brand of beer and not consuming it. Now it predicts whether after the fMRI machine, after the scanner, he'll actually go drink that beer and actually choose that beer when there's multiple options. But it's just, just um, him thinking about it. And what we also show in our research is that as you start to think of a beautiful thing, like let's say it's this trip to Hawaii, this one individual on the prior data said planning vacations. We, you go to Hawaii, but the closer you get to that trip, the more and more stressed you get. We show increased levels of anxiety, increased dramatically. How am I going to get that door? How am I going to cover everything? Um, do I really have the bandwidth to go to Hawaii? And you finally get to Hawaii, and you finally relax after three or four days. You finally get there, and the next day you go back home, and within three seconds of stepping into the door, all of the relaxation that's accrued over the last five days is all gone because the number of emails and the number of mails and the number of things you have to do and how you have to catch up. It takes, on average, one week to get back to those thresholds before you went on vacation where you feel sort of at peace or at least somewhat in balance. So our data suggests that you should plan trips to Hawaii and then cancel them. <laughs> so I'm actually serious. That's what our data suggests. So think of things that you can do and plan them and then cancel them. And it could be big things. It could be small things. Your friends should know that you're not flaky. You're just doing hedonic emotional regulation. Um, you don't have any projects you love, then spend time with people you love. Um, one of the best predictors of unhappiness, which again is a more powerful mechanism than trying to achieve happiness, reducing happiness tends to lead to greater meaning. Um, the feeling of being alone is a, a significant predictor of depression, probably one of the, well, it is the most significant predictor of depression. Um, it's tautological, too. It's a vicious cycle. You get more depressed and you get more alone, et cetera. People like to be with others. Um, and the frequent use of I in sentences is often associated with fear, uncertainty, anxiety. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll take um, open thought protocols by individuals within organizations and just do a frequency count on how many times they said I versus we, um, which again speaks to this goal of shared goals, lasting goals, which I mentioned earlier in the talk is a highly important um, outcome. 
So frequent use of I leads to negative affect. Frequent use of we in general leads to shared goals, shared motivation. So what's important here, though, as you increase the frequency and mentions of we is to be aware of people who energize you or people who deplete you. So your data suggests that people who energize you are your partner, your friends, your kids, sister, my sister's husband. I was worried about that one. Um, (laughs) My dog, my son's scout leader. I was kind of, I thought that was odd too. Fellow developers and a friend of a friend. And I just want to suggest to the friend of a friend person, ditch the friend. Go with the friend of the friend. Um, people who deplete you, this was my mom, that's a very robust finding, by the way. We have 2,000 data points to suggest that your mom and your brother, I don't know why, but your mom and your brother are the people that deplete you the most. Um, my children, sometimes my wife, sorry, husband, terrible, isn't it? Boss, boss! Uh, everybody at my gym, a certain programmer, a coworker. Here's a really interesting worker, a coworker who hates a job. That is fine for them to hate their job, but the emotional contagion effects that spread because of that single individual are significant. You've probably seen the data, the Facebook data, um, that shows that happy individuals have happy neighbors and the contagion effects that happen with people proximal to them are significant. It's even more significant in the negative space. So let me talk for a minute about complaining. Uh, The definition of complaining is to speak of one's ills or symptoms. Um, There is strong utility in complaints, that there is diagnostic value in pointing out something that's wrong, that there's bonding, significant bonding that happens when you're discussing negative things in life, much more so than positive, because negative tend to be more rare and more diagnostic. Um, And third, it's oftentimes to a revealing of a situation. However, there's a significant disutility of complaints as well. When negative um, comments about the organization outweigh the positive comments about an organization, uh, a culture of complaints starts to ensue where it's okay to complain. And in those situations, then complaining or criticizing loses its diagnostic value because the frequency of negative comment is at par with positive comment. Um, I mentioned emotional contagion effects. The way emotional contagion effects work is that, let's say I'm talking and I'm really excited and I'm like sort of, you know, getting very excited. And what happens is if you have significant empathy, then you start to feel excited too. So fMRI brain scans reveal that individuals um, actually experience excitement when they're talking to someone who's experiencing excitement, especially when they have high degrees of empathy. And they actually have behavioral mimicry effects. So they start to nod their heads with you. There you go. And you have individuals starting to nod. And once you get the people nodding, then you feel more excited. And that creates more excitement in them. And that creates uh, increased emotional contagion effects. And the same thing happens with a culture complaining, but negativity ensues. Um, So the way that this works from a brain scan perspective is that there's an interaction between two individuals, Corey and I are talking, Carrie and I are talking, and then you actually have neurons that are firing when I'm emitting a certain emotion. Then you uh, uh, emit that emotion, uh, and this is exacerbated by empathy. One thing that's really interesting is that um, emotional contagion effects are asymmetric. You feel very much what your boss feels. So your boss comes in and everyone knows how he or she is feeling. Like, don't go talk to them now. They're in a bad mood. Or, you know, avoid the person at lunch. Just, and then it's all throughout the organization. Um, however, the boss doesn't have a clue on how their employees feel. Like, the employees could be feeling horrible and the boss, um, literally, based on evolution of this process, doesn't um, know. Um, 
And there's a, a whole series of reasons behind that. The gender differences as well. Women in general, and there's many exceptions, tend to have higher degrees of empathy. Um, and therefore, there's data to show that, for example, in a marriage, when a male feels depressed and actually goes on Prozac, the chance that the female ends up going subsequently on Prozac is significantly high. When the female gets depressed and goes on, male, um, um, on Prozac, the chance that the male in the partnership ends up going on Prozac is very low. So there's, there's significant asymmetry in these emotional contagion effects such that the individuals oftentimes that have less degrees of empathy tend to take on less of the emotion of the other. This is really important because there's um, a culture that ensues when there's complaining. A large body of research suggests that, um, that the ratio between positive comments made uh, within an organization and negative comments made within an organization should be, in a thriving organization, about 3 to 1 or 5 to 1 in a really healthy organization. So that means you want five positives to every one negative. Um, Every, and my, and my husband, and by the way, the way that positive and negative interactions are coded is positive emotions are things, things like a laugh, a smile, a wink. Um, negative emotions are something as small as a smirk, a grimace, or an eye roll. Eye rolls are the worst because eye rollers don't know they're eye rolling. And so therefore, you know, you know, the other person feels disrespect, but they don't even know that they're disrespecting them. So in this research, they count up the number of positive and negative interactions, and they find that the definition of a thriving relationship is five to one, the best predictor of divorce, literally the best behavioral predictor of divorce, is one to one. So that means one negative for every one positive, slight or significant, is the best predictor of divorce, and that's because negative outweighs positive. So, for example, in our marriage, Andy, my husband, he'll, you know, I'll come home from a long day of work, and he'll go like, oh, that wasn't a very good dinner you made, but you look great, and you are funny. Great job with the kids today. Really effective work. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, so <laughs> negative, followed up with, like, we're back on equal playing field. Uh, so this can be used to your advantage, both in the organization as well as in your personal relationships. So you want to foster linguistic and behavioral habits that cultivate at least a 3 to 1 ratio, if not 5 to 1. Um, the second to last, create a reward system. So what is a reward system? Most uh, executives say no time for rewards, no I tried it, it just doesn't work. But what they don't know is the strategic use of a reward system is very important. For those individuals who say, of course, I use a reward system with myself, they'll say things like, I'll buy gorgeous shoes or Starbucks during performance reviews or a fine meal or a 10-minute reading break. I get a massage, a short workout, mountain climb, a smoothie, leather jacket, a beer with a team after completion, a round of golf. I join other project teams doing innovation. I, buy, I play harmonica when I ace my financial management course. This was one person. Um, and you'll often get the complaint that our office is constantly under pressure to perform and deliver under tight deadlines and we never seem to have any downtime. How can I relieve the stress and increase the happiness in my team? And what I would argue to you is understanding how to use reward systems strategically, understanding these emotional contagion effects and emotional buffering tends to be very useful. And I'm going to talk about four. One is the power of the small reward, emotional buffering, redefining completion, and the power of a team reward. So let me highlight for a minute these small rewards. Going out for a simple Starbucks, doing a 10-minute re uh, reading break, a short workout, etc. And the research shows that you do one small slice, one small thin slice of brief moment of pleasure, 
and you package it against, before, or after doing something hard, that ugly frog type of thinking, a hard interaction, interacting with someone who's going to deplete you. And as you pattern the positive, the small positives against the things that, you, that constantly deplete you, the, um, the emotional depletion that happens is far reduced. So for example, these are energy, energizing parts of jobs in general starting a new project, making progress on that project, and completing that project. And the thing that's interesting is that what you do is when you go through um, uh, energizing parts of jobs, you can um, uh, uh, put against, um, uh, package against them depleting other parts of jobs. So you have an energizing part of job paired with a depleting part, but also you can create emotional buffering effects by simply putting Starbucks during performance reviews. So while you're doing a hard part of the job, can you have the Starbucks? And again, the research suggests that as you consume something really fun or nice or pleasurable while doing something negative, um, that softens the negativity of that experience. So I see individuals back there saying like, okay, mental note, stiff drink while I end up uh, going through the performance review. Um, This is equally important when you start to understand depleting parts of jobs. So um, most depleting parts of jobs for your data is waiting on others, corporate tasks that just take up too much time for no good reason, and feeling micromanaged by your boss. And so what happens in these depleting uh, parts of jobs is if you can, again, take that Starbucks and package it either before or after in order to get through it. Redefining uh, completion, because completion brings so much pleasure within the work environment, understanding how to unpackage micro-tasks within a larger goal and creating small wins such that small rewards are put uh, after the first milestone, the second milestone, the third milestone. Let me give you an example of this. This is one of my friends who got her PhD many years ago, and I said, do you have a reward system? And let me just tell you what a life is like as an academic. You work for two years to create a beautiful paper with three or four experiments. You send it off to the journal. The journal tells you how bad your work is after six months. And you read 20 pages of single space criticism of your beloved work, and you garner the energy to start responding to all these reviewers and resubmitting the next package, and you slog through it, and it takes another year or two years. And if you're lucky, they will tell you your work sucks, but you can come back again. That's if you're lucky. And then you do it one more time, and one more time. And after five years, the paper finally gets through. So academics really need to understand reward systems to get through that paper to publication. My one friend, when she sends a paper finally off, she makes a catalog purchase. When she gets her first revision request, she buys herself a donic luxury item like fragrance. Second revision request, a utilitarian, though not strictly required item like shoes. Uh, Third revision, a small service-oriented going to dinner with friends. And final acceptance of a paper, something durable but nice, like a wall decoration. So the question is, what are your small micro tasks that you can start getting yourself to, and what is the reward system you can use to get yourself there? So, and also reward yourself for things that you know are painful but are hard. So for example, um, every time I get a paper accepted, I have to take my husband out to a really fancy dinner. Every time I get a paper rejected, he has to take me out for a fancy dinner. So understanding the emotional regulation effects that get you to where you want to be within your organization is very important. Power of a team reward, this idea of getting to we through creating reward structures that allow very easy wins within your team, a beer after the first task with the team is really important. Um, let me tell you a story about one experiment. Um, this is research out of Harvard. You, um, 
turn, um, you create two experimental groups. You're told to buy yourself a $20 lunch. Uh, you're told to take a friend to lunch, spend $10 on you and $10 on him or her. Uh, in this category, emotion contagion effects kick in. You got the $10 win, which, by the way, doesn't feel significantly different than 20 even though it is twice as much. But psychologically, the same windfall happens with small gifts as it does big gifts. So Christmas time, just remember that. Holiday season, birthdays, Hanukkah. Small gifts, big impact. Um, in this condition, there's a social utility that goes with the monetary utility such that the individuals in the second group seem to be at least twice as happy with that windfall as this group. Same monetary value, but the social value and the emotional contagions effects along with reciprocity kick in in the second condition. Finally, improve your sense of humor or go dancing. So this is a really interesting graph. This is research done by Danny Kahneman, Tim Wilson, Dan Gilbert, and others. And the way to read this graph is that... Um, uh, it's a multidimensional scaling exercise, and what they do is they correlate what really makes people happy with what people think makes them happy. Um, and the vertical axis is um, bounded by more glamorous things in life versus more mundane things in life. So research consistently shows that people believe religion brings them happiness, but it brings them less happiness than they think. Now, the degree to which they volunteer after being in the t temple, the synagogue, the church, whatever, that is highly correlated with happiness. But simply going and not doing is not correlated with happiness as much as people think. Education, people think after they get their MBA, their MS, their PhD, that they will be happy. But we show the expectation creep. Remember the lovely video shown at the end of Kathy's talk? Expectations creep within seconds, within nanoseconds, of getting that hi-fi um, uh, wireless access on the Virgin Atlantic, you are there immediately accustomed. And the same thing happens with PhDs um, uh, or accumulating money. Within uh, a very short time frame of making money or um, getting that advanced degree, people's expectations creep immediately. Beauty is not um, highly associated with happiness as much as people think, uh, which also helps explain why people, right after getting a facelift, start to think about the next thing they want to do. And a very robust finding is that the older individuals get, the happier they are. So as I showed you in the beginning of this talk, the individuals who are younger tend to have more angst in general. Um, what's really interesting is on the right-hand side, you'll see, um, or the left-hand side for you, self-esteem. If you can give your kids nothing but just self-esteem, it's an amazing gift. It's highly correlated with happiness and much more than people think. What's also interesting is that social skills, which relates to friendships, highly correlated um, with happiness. Free time, which isn't you got fired, so you have a lot of free time, that it's more, you know, I feel like I can control my time. This goes back to the temporal sweet spots. To what degree can you within your organization just quadrant off just a half hour within the temporal sweet spot? And we find organizations that do that, that allow that power, get out of a free jail, um, get out of jail free card. Um, for individuals to skip a meeting once a month. Um, those individuals, they don't end up skipping the meeting, but they feel like they can control their time. Those are individuals that tend to be happier in the long run within the organization. What can you do to empower individuals working for you to feel like they can control at least a small part of their free time? Uh, propensity to dance and propensity to volunteer are highly correlated with um, happiness and the propensity to laugh. Um, so I would highlight um, um, 
that the key things with free time, finding people and that you want to spend time with and spending time there. What um, the second thing is with this, though, is that most of the research shows that individuals only have eight people that they're really closely committed to in their life. And so, and that makes sense, right? You have your spouse, you have your best friend, you have your child, you have your parents. There's eight. And, you know, some people have more, some people have less, but it's around, on average, eight. Um, but the majority of the people of the time um, are not spent, the majority of the time is spent not with people in that group. Um, they're spent with your colleagues, people you dislike, um, salespeople. That's where people spend time with. But where um, they want to be spending time with is their best friends, not necessarily their mom, um, but um, people that make them smile or laugh. Uh, individuals who knew someone who died of cancer early on in their life report dancing much more frequently. We, uh, we just came back from AOL, and one of the most robust findings is the frequency of dancing is a better predictor of how happy they are than almost anything, along with frequency of actually laughing, and not just laughing alone, laughing with others. And indeed, um, one of the experiments that was done put people into two conditions. You were told to think about your marriage or your partnership and think of all the happy moments that you had together. And you were put in a condition to say, think about your marriage, your partnership, think of all the moments where you laughed together. Um, and then they came back to you both and said, how do you like your marriage at a later point in time? This group said that their relationship was almost twice as strong as condition A. So again, it's positive and positive, but this one was thinking about memories of joint laughter, and this was thought of memories of joint happiness. And what happens when you laugh is that the vividness, the belly um, laughing, the physical um, ramifications of actually laughing do something both psychologically and physically to individuals such that the frequency of laughing is a very potent, potent predictor of happiness. And finally, I'd like to talk about volunteering because, again, I started this talk off with how do you, within your organization, create social good um, that aligns with profit-making? The, the data is very strong on this. People who give time or money report greater well-being, and people that report greater well-being give more time and money. So it's a vicious cycle, one that's bi-directional. The problem is we don't know that giving to others helps, and it sounds good in theory, but it's hard to practice. In another experiment, they gave individuals, you got $5, you got $10, and they told half of you, go spend it on yourself, go spend it on others, spend it on yourself, spend it on others. So four conditions. And they looked at happiness pre and post. And what they found was, first of all, it didn't matter if you got 5 or $20. That didn't matter at all. But the individuals that were told, go spend it on yourself, were far less happy than the individuals who were told, go spend this on someone else. Again, incredibly robust. When left to choose, individuals choose to spend it on themselves, and yet I tell you to spend it on others, and they're the ones that are happier. So when you think you're making decisions to make yourself happy, you're not. But when you act in ways that align with that two-by-two two I showed you, you tend to be. So, the implications of this, one is, where do you want to invest your time and your energy this year? And I wanted to conclude with a following quote that was written in one of the comments. We've all gotten motivated, happy, or energized after an inspirational speaker. What can you do on a daily basis personally to drive a more positive outlook? 
Um, what are things you can insert in your routine? I would say on Monday morning when you wake up next week, think of two questions. How to create small moments of pleasure and use them strategically. And the second are what are small steps, micro steps, that would increase overall effectiveness and meaning in your work and life. Um, this data suggests that there's different things that bring you happiness, and the way to read this is that on the right-hand side, the things that bring deep and long-lasting happiness are much more aligned with either virtuous pleasure, doing things positive for others, or improving self, yoga, Spanish, language, computer skills. Um, and then driving toward effectiveness. I would celebrate small wins, both personal as well as group, increase the frequency of we in language more than I, uh, monitor the positive and negative ratio at least three to one, and take someone to a really cheap lunch. So that's it. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. <laughs>